Thanks for joining the Hague Mennonite Church podcast. We are a small and friendly congregation in Hague, Saskatchewan. Here you will find our weekly messages and we hope you will be encouraged and blessed. Let's get it started. So, you know, I have to say I was looking forward to this Sunday. Of course, we all were. Back when this all started last spring, I was just thinking, oh man, when we can reopen again, it's going to be so good. I'm going to do this, this, and this, and we're going to do this, this, and this. And now after all this time, when it's finally happened, it's just like, what am I doing? <laughs> what do I need to, do I need to still do that? And, you know, but I'm here, <laughs> so away we go. I'm still excited, but I have no idea what's going on anymore. Yeah, exactly. Ultimately, God is faithful. That's something we prayed about this morning. And I think for actually for a 118-year-old community, it's probably profoundly valuable for us for God to show us the value of being together. Because it's something we could have very easily taken for granted for 116 years before all of this happened. But for me, I've been away for, what is it, five Sundays or something like that. It's nice to be back in the saddle uh, we Doles, we had a fantastic June with Rachel's folks. They came out, and uh, I really enjoyed having this string of guest preachers. That was really great. Not having to prepare sermons is a lot of fun. I highly recommend it. You get to enjoy that every Sunday, so that's, that's awesome. But I'm back. So now that I'm back, I have to deal with that problem I created the last time I preached. Because what I did last time is I preached a fairly complicated sermon on half of Stephen's fairly complicated sermon in Acts chapter 7. And that was on May 30th. And I'm sure most of you memorized the whole thing as soon as you heard it, and you're just itching for me to finish out the chapter now. But to be honest with you, when I sat down this week to start to get ready, I had absolutely no recollection of what I had said, so I had to go and watch my own sermon back. And on that note, like having watched the video, Andrew, I think we have to make some camera adjustments because I look portly and and middle-aged and there's got to be something wrong with what's going on on there. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So we're going to recap a little bit and then we're going to get running with today's passage. So let's start in a happy place with a sequence of accusations. Stephen was one of the handful of guys appointed as deacons, although we discussed that term, it's a little bit loose, as deacons to deal with the issue of Hellenist widows being neglected in the early church. That was in the beginning of Acts chapter 6. We Maybe we kind of remember that. Luke, the man who wrote the book of Acts, he tells us that Stephen was full of grace and power. It's one of the first things he tells us about Stephen. It's one of his defining characteristics. And that actually, as a deacon, he was going out and he was doing signs and wonders. His ministry reflected that of the apostles. He created such a stir in Jerusalem that his own Hellenist community in Jerusalem rose up and they did everything they could to try to find some good religious charges to bring against him. These charges were that Stephen blasphemed Moses and in scripture when they talk about Moses that way, they're talking about the Torah as well, the first five books of the Old Testament or the law. They accused him of blaspheming God and they accused him of blaspheming the temple. 
And one way you could think about it is they accuse Stephen of speaking evil about what were probably the three main pillars of the ancient Jewish faith. So, Stephen was dragged before the Sanhedrin just like the apostles before him and just like Jesus before them. Caiaphas noticed this. He only asked Stephen one question. Are these charges true? Is what they say true? And then Stephen starts his speech. And so here's that basic outline of Stephen's sermon. Last time, we covered the first three points of his sermon that he preaches in response. Stephen told us that Abraham was an example of faith and promise. Joseph was rejected and then exalted by God. Moses, too, he was a rejected hero. And all the while, as he's explaining these things, Stephen is brilliantly arguing that he is not a blasphemer by demonstrating his passion for the word of God and for the history of Israel. So it is a very sophisticated response to a very short question. This time, we're going to finish his sermon with these last two points on the temple and the spirit. Verse 44, we're in... Luke chapter 7. Stephen said, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. So where we're picking it up, Stephen is kind of bridging topics. If you remember from last time, he ended off discussing the idols in the wilderness. He talked about these pagan gods, Raphan and the other one. I don't remember which one it was. And he was talking about the, the spiritual reality of Israel in the wilderness, rejecting Moses, rejecting God, and worshiping idols. Now Stephen is still looking back at that wilderness history of Israel, but he's identifying a different aspect of it, right? Right? So for 100 points, um, which tent is he talking about in this passage? The tabernacle. And wonderfully, I just love this little note. Stephen points out that the tabernacle was built exactly to the pattern which Moses had seen. And we learn from the book of Hebrews that that pattern was actually patterned after heaven. So the tabernacle, this tent in the wilderness, was constructed to actually be an outpost of heaven on earth. Verse 45. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. In these verses, Stephen is presenting this really brief summary of the history of the tabernacle. He's running through it in rapid fire and how that transitioned into the temple. So the tabernacle was a portable tent structure. It was designed to be carried. It was something that Israel could easily carry with them. When I was in in Israel in the south in the desert there, there's a reconstruction of the tabernacle there. And the guide was able to explain to me how even the tent posts of the sanctuary were set up so that the Levites never actually had to look into it. It could all be folded up without it ever being opened. And it was just brilliant. I learned so much there. So it's designed to be portable. 
It's a portable outpost of heaven. But it, it, and so Israel carried this outpost with them when they invaded Canaan under Joshua. And I was thinking about this. I, I don't know for sure, right? But I sort of think Stephen feels like he's just got to mention Joshua here. Because one thing you may know is we've made these two different names for some strange churchy reason, but Joshua and Jesus are the same name. When Stephen said this, he said Yeshua, which is the same name as Jesus. It's the same name as Joshua. And I I don't think it's accidental that he mentions Joshua here because he is, I think, subtly connecting Jesus, Yeshua, with the history of the temple. So 300 years, this is just in a couple of verses, but then 300-ish years after Joshua brought the tabernacle into the land, the tabernacle was still around, but it was kept more or less permanently at a place called Shiloh. And rather than keep this a permanent tent structure, King David asked God to create a permanent dwelling place for God in Jerusalem. Dwelling place here sounds very formal. It literally means home. David asked to create a home for God in Jerusalem. And David had reasons to do this. David wanted God to permanently dwell with his tribe, Judah, in his city, Jerusalem, under the care of his royal dynasty. But of course, David never built his temple. His son, Solomon, built the temple. And so in general, what we see is Stephen is being respectful and he's being reverent about Israel's history. He has been this way since the start. But there's a problem underneath all of this which he is just starting to inch toward. And I think there's a quick way there. Let's look at actually what Solomon himself had to say about the temple. Let's see what the man who built the temple had to say about it. Now this passage is from his prayer of dedication for the temple, you know, on opening night. Everyone was there. Right in middle of his prayer, he says this. This is from 1 Kings. Solomon asks in the middle of his prayer, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. The scene is amazing, right? King Solomon is commissioning the holy temple of God in Jerusalem with this prayer. And in the middle of the prayer, he essentially asks out loud, is this really going to work anyway? God's too big for this temple, but here we are. God does not live in buildings. And here it is. To think that we can create anything which can contain God or that we can build something where God is somehow more present is absolutely absurd. Stephen and Solomon, they both agree on this point. Stephen said next, Yet the Most High God does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, verse 49, Heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what kind of place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So Stephen here in front of the Sanhedrin, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. This is from Isaiah 66.1. And I don't think we even need to go line by line over over this passage from Isaiah. The meaning of this is pretty clear. 
It's a great image. I just love it. God uses the earth in order to rest his feet. And we're going to make him a house? What are we going to build to contain God? What could we create which would be a resting place for God? How do we make something for the one who made all things? So the crowds accused Stephen of blaspheming Moses and the Torah, and he proved his love for the Torah. And the crowds accused Stephen of blaspheming God, and he proved that he loves God while his people Israel have so often fallen away. And the crowds accused Stephen of blaspheming the temple, and Stephen is showing them their view of the temple is totally wrong. It's totally twisted. The Sanhedrin believe that the temple is God's place. They believe it contains him. And Stephen is pointing out with scripture that that is utterly ridiculous. So Stephen is not against the temple. The tabernacle was commissioned by God and it was the center of Israel's worship. God was there. In this time, the church is teaching and worshiping. They're gathering at the temple daily. Clearly, the church, the apostles, still recognize the temple. But Stephen is very simply saying God is much greater than the temple made by human hands. And if you remember this from last time, Stephen very cleverly already brought up the burning bush. Let's take a look at that. That's verse 33 here in chapter 7. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals of your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And Stephen brought this up on purpose. There's no other reason why he should mention God telling Moses to take the sandals off his feet. Was that hillside in the wilderness with some gnarled bush and officially commissioned holy place? Was there some sort of ceremony and some grand prayer? Was there fasting and feasting to commemorate it as a proper place to worship God? Nothing. Was it made and marked by human hands to be a place for God's presence? No, it's a hillside. So Stephen wants us to ask, what made that dirt on that hillside holy ground? It was the presence of the living God. Holy places are wherever God is. After all that time we spent with Jesus going through the book of Matthew, uh, covering his debates about the temple, you may be figuring already that Stephen's saying this to the Sanhedrin, he's touching a nerve, he's poking them right in their ribs, but he doesn't hold back. Now that he's touched the nerve, he doubles down, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Stephen tells the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, the most powerful men in the nation, that they are stubborn disasters descended from stubborn disasters. They have a lineage of failure, rejection, and unfaithfulness, which they continue to protect. And so who is on trial? Stiff-necked is a really common Old Testament motif. You may remember reading it quite a bit, but this is actually, I think, the only time it appears in the New Testament. It simply means, it's a great image, that you're unable to turn your head so you can't turn around and see the truth. You're just going to go in one direction and you'll never turn and look and see God. 
And this is an interesting image too. Uncircumcised of heart and ears. That's a little bit more interesting. Now it means essentially the same thing. Moses told uh, Israel this in Deuteronomy, a couple passages. Moses said, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And then he said elsewhere, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Circumcise your heart, do not be stubborn, love God. The Bible's not as squeamish as we are, obviously. And actually that metaphor makes a lot of sense because if you think about it, circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with Israel. It was specifically meant to set them apart from all other people. And Moses is saying so beautifully, it is not just an outward sign. Circumcision setting you apart from God better mark your heart as well. The covenant with God needs to be an eternal, internal reality. Moses is essentially saying a covenant is a relationship, right? It's a mutual understanding. So Moses says that performing all the outward signs of your faith means nothing if you do not know God in your heart. And he said this 1,400 years before Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus taught. With Jesus' teaching, if you remember the Sermon on the Mount is perfect, everything comes back to the broken human heart. Everything that's wrong comes back to a heart which is incomplete. And so Jesus came to restore our hearts to God so that we can live new lives. He came to circumcise our hearts. So Stephen is telling the spiritual leaders of Israel that their faithfulness to God is 100% outward and 0% inward. They do what's required of them, but they have no living faith. They are stubborn and they are unable to recognize God. They are the priests of Israel living in a broken covenant. And he doesn't stop. He says they always resist the Holy Spirit. They and those before them always resist and fight against every single movement of God. And he's not done. 52. Which of, the, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Stephen is looking the high priest in the eye and telling him that he is continuing the tradition. He is in the tradition which betrayed Joseph, which betrayed Moses. He is in the tradition of those who turn to idols in the wilderness and turn their backs on the living God. He is saying that this high priest and his peers, they are in the lineage of those who killed and abused the prophets who came to declare the coming of God's righteous one. The Sanhedrin is rebellious Israel, stretching back to the very foundations. Israel means wrestles with God. And Stephen stands before them, a Jewish man who loves the Torah, loves God, and loves the living temple. And he stands before them as Israel fulfilled, alive, and redeemed. Yet the sins of Caiaphas and, his, and the Sanhedrin, they run deeper than their forefathers. It's worse than it was in the desert with the golden calf. 
Because they didn't simply turn against Moses. And they didn't simply just abandon God for idols. And they didn't stop at killing God's prophets. They met God in the flesh and they murdered him. And the tragedy is, they were the ones best prepared to adore him. So that's why Stephen can call it a betrayal. You who received the law as delivered by angels, but did not keep it. They received the law, they received the Torah as from heaven itself. They knew exactly what to watch for in all the signs. They knew exactly the day that Moses was longing for. And they recognized all of these things fulfilled in Jesus, and they killed him. And you can try to explain it away. I always struggle with it. I mean, we know Jesus said this, that they love their position. They love their power. They wouldn't want to share it. They wouldn't want to share their power with God. Why would they? But this sin, this sin which crucifies love made flesh, it reaches back into the very core of humanity. It is the purest expression of the original sin of rebellion and confusion of good and evil where you can take the greatest good and inflict on him the greatest evil. So Stephen is saying, who here has blasphemed? (laughs) If you remember, Jesus told his, his disciples, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. All of this, it just seems so inconceivable, right? Like, how could the people of God, those, those most familiar with God's promises in his scripture, get it all wrong? How could they miss the coming of the Messiah? But then I have to step back and wonder, does the church today ever miss or forget the Messiah's second coming? Do we lose sight How could these spiritual leaders so stubbornly resist the Holy Spirit? And then I have to ask, does the church today ever resist the will of God? Does the church today ever reject God's appointed leaders? Does the church today ever pretend that buildings and things and traditions are holy and contain God? So we can look at these stiff-necked men, but when you look hard enough, you start to realize sometimes we can be a little stiff-necked too. Even we who identify with the Lord Jesus, we can fail to turn our stiff necks toward the work of the Holy Spirit. But God is greater. If God cannot be contained in temples and churches, then he is certainly not locked out of a hard heart. If the earth is God's footstool, Jesus has conquered, he will not be stopped. And one day all who look upon him will bend the knee and will be saved by faith in impossible and perfect grace. That is what we cannot do, but that is what he has done. And that's got to be the next thing Stephen says, right? Repent and turn to Jesus. Now is your chance. You've done all of these things. There's a way out. You can still be free. There's got to be a punchline after all of this. He can't just beat him up and leave it. That's got to be what his whole argument was leading up to. Of course it was. But I don't think he got the chance to finish. 
Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. How dare Stephen say that they do not keep the law. They are the teachers of the law. They resist the spirit. They are God's priests. They pour out the spirit on God's people. Their temple contains the presence of God and it is the most holy place on earth. And so they are enraged. I love this. In Greek, the word for enraged here, it literally means that their hearts were ripped Or it's the same word for sawed. Their hearts were being sawed as they listened to Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Things are getting totally out of hand for Stephen. He's He spoke the truth, and now he is surrounded by hatred. Literally surrounded, because the Sanhedrin sat in a circle around you. And in that moment, Stephen, this new deacon in the young and thriving church, he catches a glimpse of heaven. Full of the Holy Spirit, as Luke says he always was, he gazed into heaven and he saw God's indescribable glory, and Luke doesn't even try to describe it. And with it, unmistakable, unmissable, the Lord Jesus standing at God's right hand. Glorified, raised up, ruling heaven and earth just like he promised. I didn't think we'd get to come back here, but here we go. Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That was Jesus' most often quoted scripture in Matthew. You cannot have a more dramatic image, right? Because the judges in the Sanhedrin, they turn on Stephen in wrath and the judge of heaven and earth turns on and looks on Stephen in glory. And remember, Jesus once told Caiaphas, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The word for opened here, dianoigo, it's actually also a really interesting word. There's a lot of very careful language in the way Luke is recording this. Because we, we read that, that um, the heavens are opened and it's, we think that physically the heavens must have been opened up for him. But this word dianoigo is most often used to describe when somebody's eyes are opened. Somebody's perception has been opened. And I love that. Because it means that the sky wasn't necessarily opened in order for Stephen to catch a glimpse. It means that his eyes were opened so that he could perceive what was always there. The glory of heaven. Stephen confesses that he sees the Son of Man at the right hand of God. And so he confirms Jesus' promise, which Jesus made to Caiaphas in the very presence of Caiaphas in the court. And they would not have forgotten Jesus' words either. 
But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And this is the heart of it. For the Jewish authorities, the mere suggestion that God would share his glory is unbelievable blasphemy, unforgivable. And they remember Jesus' words. And so for them, this is personal. Stopping your ears is actually, it's recorded in, in the Talmud as well, I think in the Mishnah, that it's a symbolic act in Jewish tradition of rejecting blasphemy. If you hear the highest blasphemy, you cover your ears in order to save your own spirit from it. But Stephen has just told them that they have uncircumcised ears which will not hear the truth. And so now they are literally covering their ears and running toward him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. This is a court. There's no verdict, there's no sentence. In fact, Stephen was only ever asked one question. And so this is not a court anymore. It's become a lynch mob. And some scholars, they get all tied up in knots because they say, oh, but only the Romans were allowed to execute anyone in Israel. We know this, right? Like the Romans only cared about two things, death and taxes. They killed everybody they wanted to and they were in charge of all the money. That That was how they ran the show. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish government, did not have the authority to execute anyone. If they wanted to get anyone executed, we know this, they would have to come up with charges and then convince the Roman governor to perform the execution, like, say, in the most famous story ever told. But this is not an official execution. They're simply murdering him. It's just murder. And according to Jewish tradition... When someone has blasphemed, they throw him down the hillside of the city because he cannot be killed in the city. He would make the space unclean. And they break him with stones until he is dead. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Why? Because it's a lot easier to throw stones when you're not wearing a robe. So the Sanhedrin and the crowds, they cast their garments at the feet of this trustworthy up-and-coming Pharisee named Shaul, named Saul. And so then they go and take up their stones so that they can try to get a shot in. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He's alone and finished. It's a kind of isolation and agony which feels very familiar in the scripture. And so he does what he can do and he calls out to the one that he saw in the heavens. Stephen prays for Jesus to receive him. Jesus has all authority on heaven and earth. So he prays to Jesus, recognizing his authority. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. It's a gentle way of putting it. He's smashed and he's broken and he falls to his knees. And the last thing that he cries out is that God would forgive his murderers. He prays for God to forgive the Sanhedrin after he's brought his case against them and after they've taken up their stones to kill him. Fell asleep is this very New Testament way to describe his death. 
Death will not have the last word. We will wake. Luke didn't write chapters, so it doesn't end there. And Saul approved of his execution. It's almost cinematic. You know, finally, to conclude this tragic scene, the camera cuts back to another onlooker. It cuts back to Shaul, who watches on and approves of this new deacon, Stephanos, dying in agony. Shaul, we know, is from Sicilia. Though that was one of the groups among the groups of Hellenists which accused Stephen in the first place. It's quite possible and maybe even likely that as a scholar, Saul, Shaul, may have been, had something to do with all of this. He may be, have been one of those arguing for Stephen to be arrested in the first place. And many years later, many years later, Shaul will write this, Romans 8, 29. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The man who stood and watched Stephen die and approved of it will write that God destined us to become like Jesus so that we would become a part of the family of God. So needless to say, this Shaul guy is going to change quite a bit as the story goes on. And actually, he's about to become the main character of the book of Acts. But Shaul, Paul, really knows what he's talking about in this situation. I believe that somewhere along the way, he would have recognized that what he saw that day was Stephen conformed to the image of Jesus. Luke tells us again that Stephen was full of grace and power, doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen was betrayed and rejected by his own people, the Hellenists. He was accused of blasphemy against the Torah and the temple. He was brought before the Sanhedrin and he was accused by false witnesses. He was questioned by the high priest. He confronted the Pharisees and the Sadducees with their sin. He cried out to the Lord to receive his spirit. He pleaded that God would forgive his killers. He was murdered for no crime. Does any of this sound familiar? What does it mean for Paul, a man who watched Stephen die and approved of it, to say that we as believers are all destined to become like Jesus? Paul was not at the cross, but Paul saw Jesus die when Stephen was stoned to death. And when Paul came to faith and he was confronted with that thought, that must have been utter agony. And yet, he tells this to the Roman church as an encouragement. I'm going to read it again. I'll start at verse 28 this time. I'm going to read it from the NLT because Paul is really hard to understand. And I'm allowed to say that because Peter says the same thing. It's biblical. So, <laughs> This is from the NLT translation, Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. 
And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. And I sit back and I wonder, did Paul have Stephen in mind when he wrote this? And I I just sort of mused to myself, I'm going to try to ask him that one day. How did all of this work together for Stephen's good? Can you explain that to me? This whole process of becoming like Jesus. Because who in scripture have we seen who is more like Jesus than Stephen up to this point? He died like Jesus died. For Stephen, that's what becoming like Jesus meant. But he died in the light of the glory of God. And his prayer was answered and his spirit was taken up by the firstborn, the firstfruits, Jesus our Lord, who made the way for us to be saved. So that moment of rejection and horror, it is made perfect and beautiful because of the faithfulness of Jesus. And so what do you want out of life? I've been asking myself that question a lot lately. I think it's no accident that this comes up all of a sudden. What do we want out of life? Do we want to be happy? Do we want to get away from all the pain? Do we just want to have enough, accomplish enough, get to that place where we finally have contentment and ease? And I ask you, how do you ever think you're going to get there on your own? Is that what we want? Or do we want to embrace the destiny that God has set before us to become like Jesus? Do we want the whole package? Do we want the love and the hurt and the grace and the rejection? Do we want to take the whole deal? You know, we've been apart for a while. We're we're more or less together again. It feels really good. And one of the cool things about all of this is some people kind of found our community during the pandemic and they've kind of joined up with us. And that's great. Welcome aboard. We've got lots to do. And some of our people kind of fell away, fell asleep, and I don't know if they'll ever come back. And so we're different now. And now we set a course. And we decide what that course is going to be. We can decide to try to find a way to make this comfortable again, to make it familiar, and to make it safe. We can try to create the kind of church where we can rest easy until we're gone and everybody can have a nice FOSPA in our honor. That can be our goal. Or do we want to, like Stephen, call out to the Holy Spirit to make us like Jesus and then accept whatever comes with it? Do we count on Christian life costing us something because it's worth something? And does that look like a good deal? Do we want to tell the truth to a broken and an angry world? And do we pray for our enemies to be forgiven? Do we want to see with our own eyes the Son of Man exalted at the right hand of God just as he promised us? Okay, what I'm not saying is that I want a church of martyrs, okay? I would get so stressed. Don't do that. (laughs) But we do need to be determined. We need to have conviction. And the easiest way to have conviction is together. I've never met a Christian who lives alone who has conviction. And I defy anyone to prove me wrong. 
our life, in our life together, we have conviction, we set a course, we determine it to obey the Holy Spirit of God and to make us like the Son of Man. We need to be kind where kindness is needed. We need to give a reason for the hope that we have with gentleness and respect. And we need to be bold where boldness is needed. And we need to rest in Jesus when things start to fall apart because they will. And we need to be determined that we as a community will continually become better and more obedient disciples so that day by day we are conformed to the image of the Son. And we cannot do it by our own strength, but we do this only by calling out to the Most High God with one voice. And we need to be determined that no matter what this world costs us, no matter what comes against us, no matter what harm the enemy afflicts on us, Jesus is indeed the exalted Son of Man at the right hand of God, and he is coming to finish it all. And we will meet him in the act of doing the work he has called us to do. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what can I do? What can I say about this except that we thank you for the witness of your child, Stephen. And we thank you for whatever courage that was that the Holy Spirit poured into his heart. And we thank you that there were witnesses there like Paul who could remember it and tell Luke about it. And we thank you that the Holy Spirit moved Luke to record these things for us. Because God, in this story and in the words of Paul is this undeniable truth that our first and only joy is to become more like you. So teach us, Lord, the grace and the humility and the passion for our faith, which we need to resemble Jesus. And God, we lack all of these things, and so we rely on the outpouring of your Spirit to make us what we are not, to circumcise our hearts and make us pure. We thank you, Lord, that this is a grace which you give freely, and you invite us into this adventure. And we thank you that we have this community in order to walk this journey together. And we pray, Lord, teach us to be faithful. Teach us to hear your voice. Teach us to make those small decisions of faith which lead only toward your glory. And in the, in the end, Lord, let us see your glory with our own eyes and see something of that splendor Stephen saw. Thank you for all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to the Hague Mennonite Church podcast. For more information about us, you can go to our website hagemennonitechurch.ca. Until the next time.